From Entrepreneur Media, this is Problem Solvers, a show in which entrepreneurs do what entrepreneurs do best, solve unexpected problems in their business. We were completely wrong. And I'm just like, it's not selling. It was like, we have to start from scratch. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. There's a woman named Christina, and she likes to knit. So what's a good name for her company? Well, I'll tell you what a bad name is. I think if I had started this brand as a little side hustle and named it Christina's Knits, I don't think that we'd be where we are right now. Christina's Knits. Totally terrible. Super boring. Who pays attention to that company? Nobody pays attention to that company. So what is a better name for Christina's Knit Company? Well, Christina will tell you. My name's Christina Party, and I am the founder and CEO of Shit That I Knit. Shit That I Knit. Now there's a name. The first time I went to a market, I had this really bad sign that I made from Vistaprint. And every single person who walked by pretty much for the most part, smiled, laughed, nudged their friends and remembered it. And so it's something that I don't really need a business card. I can just say, Google shit knit, knit shit, whatever you want, it'll pop up. Now, we're not here to talk about shit that I knit just because I enjoy saying the phrase shit that I knit. We're here to talk about shit that I knit because it is a great object lesson in how to infuse mission into your business. And Christina is really thoughtful about how to navigate the challenges that can come as a result. But first, uh, what is actually shit that I knit? Well, shit that I knit is a Boston-based knitwear brand. They're best known for their beanies. They employ about 400 women in Lima, Peru. And uh, you can find shit that I knit in all sorts of places that don't sell shit. We sell into Nordstrom, Anthropology, Tuckernock, lots of you know larger department stores and specialty stores. We also have a very strong direct-to-consumer business. And recently, she started licensing with the NFL, which is pretty cool. But okay, I had mentioned a second ago, challenges plus mission. So what am I talking about? What I'm talking about is that Christina, shit that I nip, sells beanies. And they sell it in a world that is full of beanies. And most of those beanies, or many of those beanies at least, are a lot cheaper than Christina's beanies. Because Christina, well, is doing a couple things that are pretty expensive. Number one, she is sourcing sustainable, eco-friendly materials, 100% merino wool, alpaca wool, pima cotton, no additives or plastics. And then also, she employs more than 400 artisans in Lima, Peru, and pays them fairly so they can support their families. I'm reading directly from her website at this point. And all that is expensive. And it is something that she committed to very, very early in building this company. I mean, this started as a little side project, a little side hustle, and she has grown it with a real commitment to these and other good practices as we are going to get into later. And that means a higher price. And that means she's got to figure out how to tell a story that is going to drive that consumer. How does she do it? How do you infuse mission into your company? How do you maintain a commitment to sustainability and also build something that is sustainable? That is what we are going to talk about on this episode of Shit That I Talk About. I mean, problem solvers. And it's coming up after the break. Who doesn't want to do right by the planet? Well, one of the easiest ways is to use paper. And another is to choose products that come in paper-based packaging. Because paper comes from trees, a natural and renewable resource. And here in the U.S., private forest owners carefully maintain healthy forests and their habitats to provide our essential paper products. And those products can be recycled up to seven times. 
Thanks to innovative design solutions, everyday items from cosmetics to liquid detergents are now using paper-based packaging, making it easier than ever for consumers to do good for the planet. And the same goes for business owners. Choosing paper-based packaging materials is a great way to take the sustainable path forward that also gives back. So choose paper and help America's forests thrive. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com. All right, we're back talking to Christina of Shit That I Knit. Well, it's shit that she knits, I guess. And a quick programming note, her audio quality is going to improve dramatically a few minutes into this interview because she was originally talking into the wrong side of the microphone. And then we we realized it a few minutes in and fixed that problem. Okay, we started by talking where the mission driven element of her business came from that she wasn't just making beanies, but she was making them sustainably both in materials and in labor. And here's what she said. It really just, it's really very much a part of the business plan versus a marketing ploy, you know, and it's not necessarily all that we stand for. I mean, at the end of the day, we're creating really cute beanies that women want to wear, but we're doing it in a way that feels really good to me at the same time. So when I started the business, I was knitting everything myself. The thought to go and create these products that I love so much that people were like, this is the best hat I've ever worn. It's so warm. It's so well-made. It's so special. The thought of having that made in China or somewhere in a factory machine just never even crossed my mind. So I started really researching nonprofits that could connect me to artisan groups in South America, mainly because that's where knitting has a really longstanding tradition. And that's also where we were supplying our yarn. We use 100% merino wool, Pima cotton, baby alpaca, and that's really where it comes from. So it made sense for me to start researching those areas, even though I had absolutely no experience in that area. I was an art history major. I was in tech sales before I did this. Did not have a sourcing background at all, but that's where I that's where I really started my search when I wanted to scale this from me and my mom knitting this to a couple of women helping us in Boston to where we are now. And what was that actually like? Because I imagine a lot of people can relate to the first part of what you just described there. You're doing this as a side hustle. It's scaling a little bit. You're trying to make decisions about what best to do. But there's a large leap between that and you employ 400 women in Lima, Peru. What was the process of doing that? And what was on your mind as you wanted to find, I'm sure also people who you could make sure would be fairly compensated for their work and that labor practices would be up to your standards? Yeah. You know, what went through my mind was, I mean, obviously we started very small when this first round of production arrived to us in Boston. So I think my first order with our team down in Lima was around 500 units. So it was by no means a 400 person job, but I started reaching out like very much blindly cold calling nonprofits, found a woman in Colorado who connected me to the group we work with today. They were run by two American women who had a similar business making knit products, but they had so much of the production team and not enough demand. So they started looking for other clients who could help them further employ these women. And so I knew that they had similar values to me. I knew they were trying to do the same thing, which was create products that felt really good in a sustainable and socially responsible way. And so I started Skyping with them. This was pre-Zoom. You know, I was just on Skype and I sent down my life savings for my first my first order. I was 25 and and had never met them, but I didn't have enough money to actually go to Peru to look at everything. 
And so that's how it all began, but very much in a small way, but it made sense to me. It was something that I could really understand because I had been making these things from home. It made sense to go and find other women who could make them from home as well. So you started with this connection that was a little bit of a flyer. Mm -hmm. And how did it grow from there? Do you go down to Lima? Yeah, we were pretty much in a cadence of going about every six months up until the pandemic, mainly just to check in. It's so much easier to make connections that way. When we go down, we go to the office where all of our products are QC'd and and where a lot of the product development happens. But we also go out into the field and visit these different groups. A lot of the groups we, we work with are technically in Lima, but they're about two and a half, three hours from the office which is another reason why I feel so strongly about this this way of producing our goods. These women, a lot of them don't have the opportunity to leave the home to work, much less leave their kids and commute two hours into the city center to get a job. So this is something they can do from home and, and not leave their kids with unreliable childcare. So that's what we do when we go down, but it's usually pretty quick and enjoy, of course, the ceviche and the pisco sours and all the good food in Lima. What has been the... Sacrifice is not the right word, but the cost of this, uh, you could you could have done this cheaper mm-hmm. elsewhere for sure. Have you ever calculated that or have you ever thought about that? Or has it ever felt like a strain as you're trying to scale and focus on your margin? Absolutely. It's really expensive to make products this way. And you can see at our retail prices, these are expensive hats. They're 135 Our sweaters are $200. they are not cheap. And it, and it is difficult to get the price to where we need it to be in order to have a reasonable margin to support not only our direct-to-consumer business, but also wholesale and then pay for everything else that a business entails on top of that and have a profitable business. I have one time met with someone who was making sweaters in China and seeing their prices was just mind-blowing to me. I was like, oh my God, this would be so much easier. And they're like, just pick a sweater and then you have it made and it's done. Um, This is very different. This is us actually designing things, knitting them myself to have the tech pack made. It's very homegrown. So it is hard to compete with other prices and to educate the consumer that this is handmade. It's, it's difficult. And as a consumer myself, if I want to go and buy my two-year-old a cotton sweater from The Gap, I can get that for $17. I don't think I can make that in Peru for under 60 like just making it alone. So it's definitely difficult. So what's the solution to that? I mean, there's like a number of different ways to think about this. Number one, let me pick up on the thread, uh, not to be punny, but that you just offered there about educating the consumer that it's handmade. Obviously, if you can do that successfully, there is a, a kind of consumer that is therefore willing to pay more because they see it as of higher value. But what has that been like? Do you feel like you're successfully doing that? Are you surveying your customers and discovering that they really respond to that? Like, is that the pathway forward for you? Is is education and identifying consumers that are that are responsive to the exact kind of things that you're able to bake in here? I think that first and foremost, what I always try to do is create a product that someone actually wants to wear. You know, it, it could be really sustainable, hand-dyed yarn and all this stuff, but it's a ugly brown thing and no one wants to wear it. So it we have to focus on that. And that has been limiting in what we can actually create. It has to be really simple, classic, and timeless. So you really try to emphasize that this is something that you can wear year over year. It's not going to go out of fashion. Um, we can't be doing trendy things. And then I think we could do an even better job about educating our consumer and educating them against what we're so accustomed to, which is going and buying a 100%, allegedly 100% Pima cotton sweater for $17. But I think we could do an even better job. It has made me be more patient. We have to be patient for that right customer who really cares about sustainability and cares about how something is made. 
There are people who get upset about our price point who don't understand why a beanie is so expensive. So we just have to either let them be upset about that and wait for the person who's who's right for us. And that's really what's worked for us so far. Have you ever gotten any pressure to change any of this? I mean, you're you're now in a lot of large retailers. I imagine the buyers of those retailers are telling you, you know, if you could just half the cost here, we'd sell a lot more of these. Not necessarily from retailers. I have we've never raised institutional money, but when I have talked to potential investors, they have talked about mass appeal and how the prices would have to be reduced significantly. I do think our price point does demand a certain type of brand awareness. You know, it, it's it's nicer if it's more expensive. So I think that for retailers that we're working with, with like Nordstrom, um, we're doing a trunk show at Bloomingdale's this weekend. Those types of retailers sort of enjoy the higher price point. But for the most part, it's really coming from customers who are not accustomed to our story, to our product, who come to the site. And and get a little bit upset that maybe it's something out of their price point. And so those are the people that we need to say, this is why this is why it's so expensive, or this is why it's from the materials to the labor to how we're running the business. Actually, I wonder if that's the reason why when I went to your About Us page, as I noted at the very beginning of the conversation, and saw that it was so mission forward, the very first thing you see is the high quality, the sustainability of the, of the material. And then it's about the labor... Was that a conscious decision to, in a, in a way, I mean, that, that's that's signaling a whole lot of things to consumers. But one of them, I suppose, is probably now you understand why these things are more expensive than a cheapo hat that you get at J. Crew. Yeah. But I think even that is hard to explain without touching and feeling it and putting it on. But yeah, we need we need a lot of explanation. We need a lot of education. It can't just be a picture of a hat and say, here, it's $35. Buy it if you want. And typically the way we you know, our new customer acquisition goes is it's a couple of touch points. It's maybe they follow us on Instagram, then they get followed by an ad. Maybe we send them something. Maybe a brand ambassador talks about why, you know, what, what our mission values are, and then they come back and buy. It's not necessarily an impulse purchase for everyone. You really have to buy into the story, whether, and we try to have lots of different pillars that might be important to lots of different types of consumers. Maybe they really love my entrepreneurial story. Maybe they love that it's a hundred percent Marina wool. They love that we're working with women. They love that we're giving back or they just love that it's a really cute hat with a fun pom-pom. So we try to give people (laughs) a lot of different reasons to love us, but that are naturally baked into the business plan. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to get into the details of execution on that mission. We're going to talk about that shit, but good shit. This episode of Problem Solvers is being presented by State Farm. Being a small business owner can be so fulfilling, rewarding, and let's be honest, a little scary from time to time. Doing your own thing and being your own boss is great, but sometimes it can make you feel like you are all alone, especially when things aren't going great. Well, the folks at State Farm want you to know that you are not alone. State Farm has thousands of agents who are small business owners too, so they know what it takes to protect everything you've worked so hard for. State Farm has an assortment of insurance policies for small businesses that can be tailored to your needs. So whether you're a hairstylist, an electrician, or a florist, State Farm agents are ready to help. Learn more and find an agent today at statefarm.com slash business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, we're back. And I promise from here on out, no more jokes about the name of the company because I think I've overdone it at this point. So back to the interview. Let's talk about the materials for a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I don't know the first thing about the materials, the range of materials available when you're shopping for something that's knit. But I, I guess based on what I saw on your site, 
there are some decisions that consumers, if they're aware of, are making, but probably really at your level of the creation that you're making decisions on, which is, is this going to be organic and sustainable? And please explain what on earth that even means in this particular case, or somehow partially synthetic. And obviously, I'm, I'm going to guess that the, the sustainable stuff is also more expensive. So first, can you tell me like what is the range of stuff available and the reason you went the direction that you went? Well, when I was first starting out, it was just the yarn that I was using. In the, in the very cool knitting community, you might call me a yarn snob. I like to buy these really soft merino wool or cashmere or pima cotton to knit with myself. And so that's what I naturally gravitated towards. When we started to work at scale, I really wanted to create things that were legitimately warm. And plastic on your head is not warm. And so even when you look at our NFL collection now, these NFL beanies are 100% merino wool. The other NFL beanies you can buy on Fanatics or on NFL shops, they're 100% acrylic. So if you're standing outside of Gillette, that's a pretty, that's a pretty cold head. So I wanted to create something that was really, really warm. And, and we've, we've definitely achieved that. Sometimes they're arguably too warm. And that's, and that performs really well year over year. It's something that doesn't fall apart and it's, but it has made things more expensive. Those materials have definitely increased in cost. They continue to increase. And it's something that I don't feel good about saying, okay, let's just cut this in half and do 50% Merino, 50% acrylic. But if you are a conscious consumer and you do shop on J crew and look at what these sweaters are made of, it's almost like 95% plastic. Like it's polyamine, Mm. it's synthetic materials. And then it has like a little bit of wool, but the product description says wool blend. So you don't even think twice about it, but that's what's going back into the earth when you decide, Hey, this sweater's really pilly now. I'm not going to wear it next year. So I'm going to toss it in the donation bin or the trash. So those are the... Is that what sustainable means in this case? I actually had never really considered exactly what we're talking about here. But is it, is it number one that when this thing falls apart, I mean, it just sort of biodegrades easier than a plastic hat that'll hang out in a landfill for a very long time. Yeah, I think I think wool is a much better material for that. And I mean, I am careful when I talk about sustainability around our materials because wool does, for instance, use a lot of water. So I don't think it's like not doing anything bad to the earth necessarily, but it is something that you can feel better about and that is going to last year over year. I think a lot of us are buying products from these fast fashion brands that you are you know you're going to wear it twice. You want to buy a hat at H&M because it's $5. You're like, you can wear this once and throw it out. That's not good for the earth. That's a lot of waste. And that's, that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to create things that you can wear. And I see them all the time. And sometimes I'm like, okay, I think that hat's been around for too long. But I'll see hats walking down the street here in Boston that I personally knit. Like they last a really long time. That's from seven or eight years ago. I'm like, okay, I think I need to get you a new hat. That that looks really bad now. But that's awesome. Wait, do you run up to people and you're like, I made that? <laughs> yeah, last night on my walk home, I saw four beanies. So that's kind of fun to see. And I, I get a hat. And sometimes they know who I am, and sometimes they're like, she's a freak. I always try to chase people down the street. <laughs> you that? I, I, how could you yeah. not? That's also probably a great opportunity whenever somebody. Whenever I have an experience like that, which in my case would be somebody is... I've never just walked down the street and heard someone listen to my voice. That would be really weird. Mm-hmm. But but I have held, I have had people just tell me they listen to something. And I always want to know where do they hear it from? And like, what, you know, like, what was... What got them to listen and, and whatever? What do you learn as you <laughs> accost people on the street who are wearing your hats? Do you learn anything that you, maybe you can kind of bake back into these big questions about how do you drive awareness? How do you tell your story? Yeah, I feel like I learn the most when I hear people talking about it and they don't know I'm there. Probably similar. 
yeah. view. So if I'm in a store that we work with in Boston or in Nordstrom, hearing people tell our story and the way that they tell it is always really fascinating to me. And then I'll be like, hi. But usually, usually it leads with they employ all these women in Peru. I mean, sometimes they get the country wrong, but they, but that really sticks out to people, I find. And that it's their favorite hat in the world. They're like, this is so warm. You're you're just going to die. It's so warm. That's the other big part. And then the other thing is they love following us on Instagram. So those are sort of the three things that I, I tend to pick up when I overhear people telling their friend about our brand. Well, that's really interesting because that tracks really well with the way that you've already talked about the brand, right? I mean, what you heard is a combination of story that is attached to mission plus quality plus touch point. Yeah. Another element of, I guess you could call it mission or however you want to frame it, is you have this charitable component. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. A friend of mine a couple of years ago was diagnosed with leukemia and her friends asked me if I would come over and teach her and her couple of her friends and mom friends had a knit. And so I put together these little kits, went over to the house and we knit for two hours, made some really ugly scarves or something. But her mom came up to me after that class and said, this was so nice. This is the first time in weeks that I haven't thought about Annie's cancer. Like I, for two hours, I was able to take my mind off of things. And that really got my mind going. And it made me realize how much knitting is therapeutic to me. It's something that I grab maybe after a stressful day at work. It's a way to sort of detach. So it started in a very authentic and organic way. And I started reaching out to different yarn companies to see if they could donate yarn and someone else for needles and then very quickly started working with Dana Farber here in Boston to donate what we call give a shit knit kits to young adult cancer patients. And focusing on the young adult cancer patient because it is sort of an underserved demographic in the in the cancer community where you don't really know where to put them. And so we wanted to reconnect with our peers and, and offer this thing. It's not a one-for-one program. It's not something we necessarily shout about, but we did just pack up, I think, like... 400 skeins of yarn to send out to another organization yesterday for our Giving Tuesday push, just as a way to share my love of knitting with with people who are going through a difficult time. So that's been an initiative that I feel very strongly about. That's really awesome. Can you tell me about the decision to not shout it from the rooftops? Because I think some people see good things that brands are doing <laughs> but the brands speak so loudly about them that people wonder if this is a PR effort more than anything else. But of course, you do want good feelings to come from the things that you're doing, yeah. right? Altruistic as you may be, you also are running a business and doing something good can make people feel good about you. And that's good for everybody. Tell me how you have approached the way in which you tell that part of your story. I think that I personally grew up in the era of Tom starting the one-for-one program and then every other brand doing the exact same thing. And so I, as a consumer, I'm weary of that. I'm like, okay, what's really happening here? Is it really the same quality shoe or is it like something else? And so I just didn't feel the need to do that. And I do feel as though as a company, we're doing enough good in the way that we create our products, that this is just another way to use the platform to do even more good. And so even beyond the give a shit net kits, doing good, speaking out about politics, getting involved, donating hats to people who need them. That's just something that I love to do as someone who has 60 some 60,000 people following me on Instagram. Like last year, we actually had a whole batch of really small hats and we decided just to donate them to elementary schools. And so had our followers write in, are you, you know, are you a teacher? We'd love to send you 
10 to 15 beanies each. We sent out a couple hundred of these and it felt so good. It's just a nice thing to do. And I think anyone who's caught that on Instagram was like, hey, I really love that Chilinet did this. But it's not like that's what we do. It's just using the platform to do good feels good to me. Christina, final question. We've talked about how to and how you have navigated baking in a mission that raises costs, but also does things in you know what you feel like is the right and responsible way. And what's your advice to other entrepreneurs who are facing maybe an early crossroads where they have an idea of how they want to operate, but they see that, you know, just outsourcing something to China or to whatever, doing something is going to, it's going to lower costs. Maybe it's going to lower some barriers. And they're, they're maybe feeling a little stuck because the road that you've taken feels steeper. What's your suggestion? I guess it depends what type of brand you want to build. I think if you think of the other meaning of sustainable, I think I'm building a, a company that is sustainable for for a long-term growth and long-term success. And I think it's why we're now getting a lot of looks from these big partnerships. It's because we've built this brand and this company and the way that we produce things in the right way for what feels like a lifetime to me now. It is a steep road. It has not been an overnight success. It has not been easy, but I think it's something that has legs that can continue to grow beyond just being a, a flash in the pan, a couple of years of, oh my God, that's such a hot brand to you know, they're no longer in business. So I'd say stick with your guns, but don't do it in a way that's so ridiculous. You know, you still, I mean, it has, while we've had to make difficult decisions about what products we add, it's kept me really focused. It's why we've been so focused on beanies. I've still made smart business decisions around being sustainable, but I haven't just said like, okay, let's just make $3,000 bags now because that's how much they cost. So still, still thinking business-minded around how we can create things sustainably. Christina, thanks. This was, this was really great. great. Thank you so much for having me. And that's our episode. I would love to hear what you think and maybe even about a problem that you solved. You can find me at my website, jasonpfeiffer.com. J-A-S-O-N-F-E-I-F-E-R.com. Also, I have some more useful stuff for you. I write a newsletter about how to future-proof yourself and become more adaptable and optimistic. I would love for you to sign up. It is at jasonpfeiffer.bulletin.com. Also, check out my other podcast. It's called Build for Tomorrow. In each episode, I take on some belief that we have that holds us back from progress and show you why it is not as bad as you think. Problem Solvers is a production of Entrepreneur Media and comes out every Monday morning, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Thanks to Deepa Shah for production. My name is Jason Pfeiffer. See you next week.